On November 30th, Nate Silver tweeted the following. Months in New York City ranked. Number one, October. Two, September. Three, November. Four, June. Five, May. Six, December. Seven, April. Eight, July. Nine, March. Ten, January. Eleven, August. Twelve, February. Now, for someone as outspoken as Nate Silver in worst rankings, I got to say, this one may not be the, as bad as he thinks the net is, but it's it's not good, Brendan. Why? Why do you say that, Tom? What, what don't you like? I do like October, but there's no way on God's green earth that January is not the worst month in New York. <laughs> you, have, you like you like it, uh, you don't like uh, you like February more than January? Yeah, it's, the days are getting longer. It's a little warmer. College basketball games are more important. January, it's short days, freezing cold. You're walking through slush every day to work. No. No holidays. No holidays. Well, Martin Luther King Day. That's true. That Never racist. Mind. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Are you just, just call uh, Martin Luther King racist? No, I called you racist for ignoring Martin Luther King Day. Uh, mm. April, May, and June are all good. August. How could August be 11th? It's still summer. I know it's hot in New York and can be unpleasant, but how is August worse than December? Please. Do you have any opinion on this, Brendan, or no? <laughs> Do I have any views on my own subject, or am I going to, uh, what, is the, what is the term? From Are you going to plagiarize the whole thing? <laughs> uh, yeah, I like October. It's a good month. September is a good month also. Um, what was September ranked? September was second. November. How was November 3rd? What is going on here? Uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like Nate Silver basically kind of is a composite ranking. Like, um, I feel like you should be an outlier at some point. Um I don't know. I don't like the summer. I prefer the winter, honestly. I'll be honest. Um, February's a little higher for me. Uh, that's a pretty good time of year. Spring training started. There's some baseball talk. New York's a pretty good baseball city. Um, I mean, I don't know. Whatever. Nate Silver, we're going to give him a hard time. I think it's going to be a running theme in this podcast, and uh, that's all right with me. Yeah. All right. Let's talk some basketball. the rest of the way. Double two bonus as well. Right, two free throws. Both teams will be on the double bonus, so we'll have two the rest of the way. Hello and welcome back to the Double Bonus Podcast, starring Tom Borstein and your co-host, uh, Brennan DeRocher. Um, this is, I think, our eighth episode. Um, Seven. I believe. Seventh, huh? Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, but, uh, you know... The last time you heard from us, I think we had maybe nine followers on Twitter, and I think now we have 21. And it's all due to, uh, well, one person uh, followed my tweet on my personal account and started follow- started listening, or following us at least. And if, So if you're out there, Peter Megan, this one's for you. Uh, everyone else that joined us recently is uh, due to Ken Pomeroy, who is uh, kind of the patron saint, the co patron saint of this podcast with uh, Bill Raftery, who decided to tweet out a tweet that we put out last uh, last Thursday, I think, or Friday, the 30th. Uh, the tweet was, ranks on at Ken Pomeroy of eventual national champions. I should put eventually national champions, a little typo on my part, on this date in each of the last seven seasons. And it ran through the champions and where they were ranked. And they were ranked anywhere from, they were three ranked two, one ranked three, one ranked, run ranked one, one ranked eighth, and run ranked 22nd. Just kind of, you know, I throw out tweets there and, and at people and no one responds on our Twitter account. But this time, Ken Pomeroy tweeted our tweet with, uh, for those who think early season rankings don't matter. And we ended up getting uh, 27 re- retweets and 88 likes and 11 new followers. So if you're listening for the first time, uh, sorry, 
you'll probably be underwhelmed, but maybe you'll like it enough to stick around as we improve uh, from uh, from week to week. So welcome, uh, Tom. How was the uh, last week for you, your college basketball life, and just your life in general? Uh, both were good. Imagine how many new followers we'd had if you didn't have the typo in the tweet, Brenton. Yeah, 22 maybe. Yeah, no, it was good. Got some good uh, good basketball in. Sweated out a Kansas game that should not have been that close. Mm-hmm. You could argue they deserve to lose. Uh, but some, some, it wasn't really an upset heavy week. There was a lot of games where teams were tested, but didn't win. Uh, but didn't lose, I mean. And so I enjoyed it. Uh, we're starting to learn a little bit more about just how good some teams are. And uh, Roy Williams had a bad week, but we'll get to that. My week was better than Roy Williams' week. Let's just put it that way. Uh, speaking of which, the Big Ten ACC Challenge was last week from Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It feels like a long time ago now, um, but it was a split, 7-7. The, the Big Ten and the ACC split. Uh, there were a couple of late comebacks on Wednesday night. Wisconsin against uh, NC State and uh, Iowa against Pitt uh, that ended up salvaging that tie, although Purdue did uh, fall to Florida State. And what was a night of actually very close games. In our challenge, you might remember that we picked all the games with our confidence points. Um, I defeated uh, Tom by the score of 77-63. Um, I believe I picked Syracuse and he picked Ohio State. Um, and I picked... Uh, this is another one. Oh, I picked Nebraska. He picked Clemson. I think there was one other that I picked that he didn't pick. Uh, but that 77-63 score was the same as the uh, November 23rd matchup between Nichols State and NC Central, which uh, can't be a coincidence. What were your thoughts on the Big Ten AC Challenge? Uh, the other one that you won on me was uh, you had Florida State and I had Purdue. Mm. Um, I, I was struck by a few things. One, Michigan is really good. Uh, two... Uh, Indiana was just like on another planet in their game against Duke. First, that game started late on ESPN because uh, Louisville and Michigan State went long, which was a not well-executed end of game. But I actually flipped over. I want to see. Uh, I thought that the le- first five minutes of the Duke-Indiana game could be just as, de- as decisive as the five minutes of overtime of the Michigan State-Louisville game, and I was correct. But Indiana had was awful, and I'm a little surprised by how just lost they were at Cameron. They just came and just turned the ball over nonstop. They had 13 turnovers, 11 baskets in the first half. So that was a striking. Oh, the Michigan-Louisville, Michigan State-Louisville game was not well executed. Both teams, uh, Louisville fouled for some reason uh, down with five seconds to go in a tie game, then hoisted up a bad three at the end of the game. So that was ugly. Um, yeah, but it's also surprising to see uh, Miami fall to Rutgers. That was one of our most popular picks, our most confident picks, I should say. And uh, Rutgers ended up uh, kind of upsetting Miami, and really Miami does not look – they're a little bit of a funk right now, it seems. Yeah, I want to jump back to Michigan State-Louisville, not because I want to talk about um, you know Josh Langford's bad missed free throw or the, the bad foul that, that was part of the game, but I want to talk about um, uh, Dan Dockage primarily. So Dan Dockage in the game, you know, everyone – who watches and listens to college basketball is a huge fan of Dan Dockage and his insightful uh, commentary and his history with Bobby Knight, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but one thing that he said in this game is um, Kyle Ahrens, who's a big guy for Michigan State, he um, he ran on the court at some point, and um, Dan Dockage referred to his running during the play as, quote, Usain Bolt-like. And around the same time on, a po- on the Eye on College Basketball podcast, um, ho- co-host Gary Parrish, who, by the way, if you haven't noticed and listened to that podcast, he, he's from Memphis. Um, he said that uh, the Duke managers, as you know, that, and that when halftime starts in a Duke game, the managers, like, bust it to the locker room. He said they're spent to the halftime locker room 
they sprint like they're being chased by Usain Bolt. So my question to you is, and I know we have some track and field fans listening, who is most likely to be the go-to fast person that eventually replaces Usain Bolt? Or is it going to be Bolt for the rest of our lives? I think it's going to be Bolt. Get back to me when someone else wins three straight. It's three straight, right? 100 meters? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel like Carl Lewis had that title for a while uh, after he, like, towards the end of his career and when he was retired. Um, but yeah, I, I guess there's no one in the scene right now that I think is going to replace Usain Bolt. But uh, I do wonder if in 10 years, the Dan Dockages of the world, maybe still Dan Dockage is referring to people running like Usain Bolt, even when Bolt is like 45 years old. Yeah, I mean, Bolt is world famous. He was trying out for soccer teams. His brand is good. His his presentation's good. The sprint he's, playing, he's playing soccer right now in Australia, I think. Yeah, he and he was trying to get like a, a full contract, but he didn't get it. Um, uh, related, the two managers reminded me I was a U.S. Open ball boy 2001. Mm-hmm. As, as one does. And the we Kramer were, of this podcast. That's correct. And then, uh, so we were trained as when we were on the courts, you would you would stand at the middle of the court, and then when the second player put his bag down or her bag down, you would sprint to your assigned position. Just, we called it the burst because we spread out from one spot. So that's kind of reminds what the Duke manager sprint for the locker room reminds me of. And there's yeah. you know there's there's an interesting New York Times article several years ago as well around the subject of managers because we'll never talk about them again. How they have to get those you know stools in just the right spot, do everything during the timeout. It's very well choreographed. There's a whole system to it, organized chaos. So. Shout out to the uh, the Duke managers, who I'm sure are lovely, lovely children who have never gotten any opportunity and just kind of showed up at Duke, and it's been great. But good for them. They're uh, they're helping out Coach K. Uh, get really mad at his Duke team when they're up 25 against Indiana. Throwing throwing his coat. Yeah, I I, I feel like now almost all teams do the uh, the huddle during timeouts out on the floor, yeah. on the stools. Very few do it on the bench anymore. Although when I went to the Iona Providence game, Iona. Um, did it under Tim Clewis did it on the bench. Uh, why do you think that is, Tom? Why do you think the change? It's more easy to like you know when you go on a conference room and it's an L-shaped table. You know, like a, it's not as easy to see people. Everyone's in a circle. You're all looking at different people. You, the coach can be in the middle. He can be the focal point. It's much easier than just kind of moving around, being scrunched enough to like crane over someone's shoulder to look at someone. It's just all in there. It's you know you're in a circle and you can the coaches can uh, can get his point across just by looking people in the eye. It's, it's, and especially, I guess, when you're on the road, you're removed from the crowd a little bit, so you can yeah. be easier to hear. Um, any other thoughts on the Big Ten C Challenge? Um, we talked about Michigan. This is going to be a Michigan-heavy podcast early season. They are kind of the, the standout team, uh, standout surprise team, but uh, they did defeat uh, Roy Williams in Kansas, uh, Kansas and North Carolina. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, on Dadgum Roy Williams and, well, uh, and that performance? Roy Williams was motivated enough to uh, say he's coaching sucks right now mm-hmm. after that game. Um, it's almost like the English patient. <laughs> how about it sucked? Another Seinfeld <laughs> reference. There we go. What are we up to two now? Uh, yeah. Good. We'll, we'll track Seinfeld versus track and field references. We'll see which one. <laughs> good prop bet out there in Vegas. Um, his quote was, right now we stink. I've coached for 31 years. Right now my coaching sucked. We, of course, know Roy Williams' trademark is to never call timeouts. Uh, in this game, which was an 84-67 loss in Ann Arbor, Roy Williams led his team uh, be outscored uh, between media timeouts. Before he called the timeout, it was 15-2. It was a part of a 17-2 run. The first two points of the run came right before um, the inside, uh, one of the media timeouts. Um, so he did that thing where he just lets his team play through it. He did it in a national semifinal. If you're not going to call a timeout at a national semifinal in 2008 when you're giving up a 25-2 to run or whatever it is, why would you call a timeout for a measly 15-2 to run? Um, 
in Michigan. So Roy Williams or not, his coaching or not, timeouts or not, they were going to lose that game. He just Michigan is on another level right now defensively. Um, I know you've crunched the numbers, looked at it, how good they are at two-point defense without even blocking shots, really, which is crazy. Yeah, Tom's so excited there. His headphones, headphones are falling off his head talking about Roy Williams. Very passionate thoughts about Roy Williams. I go up and down. I always dislike him, but I go up and down on how much I dislike him. And, Ouch. Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I kind of like Roy Williams, I guess. Uh, but he, he wasn't a coach on my team for a while. Um, it's a good uh, segue into the Big Ten Conference uh, openers. Um, maybe before we get into Michigan, uh, smoking Purdue, what are your thoughts on Big Ten or in conference play in general at the end of November, beginning of December, so early. Do you, do you like it? Do you like the kind of foretaste of it, or do you think that it should be kind of isolated uh, after non-conference play? What are your What are your thoughts? Um, well, here's, is it a question of if they're going to play these games or have a shorter conference schedule, like fewer conference games? Like the Big Ten is what 14 teams. They play how many conference games? 20 or 18? Now they play 20. Yeah, 20. This is the first year. So if they're going to play, and last year they did this, they played 18. But I like more conference games. Um, we don't need the they did, they did it last year because they had the early conference tournament. Oh, right, 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 right. So now they extended the season. Um, I like it. If you're going to get more conference games, it's good. I think it's weird when you have your Big Ten team and you play, uh, you only play a couple teams twice and you play the rest of the team once. You, only, you don't get them to come to your court or you don't get to visit them. So I'm okay with it. Um, Carolina, I mean, let's look at let's look at Michigan's schedule, for example. What do they have that would be... Um, uh, that would what what are these games really replacing? Now they played Villanova, they played George Washington, Providence, Chattanooga, Holy Cross, Norfolk State. Like do we how many more of these Western Michigans coming up, Air Force, Binghamton? Like eh, we don't need any more Michigan Binghamton games on the schedule. The so, Bearcats yeah. of Binghamton. Yeah. Division They one. haven't lost a football game since nineteen forty seven. I mean but yeah. I think it's fine to um to play these games in December. It's a nice touch. Obviously, I like that they go back to the conference schedule, too. It's kind of like a special sneak peek, a tease, and then you go back to it. So I'm, I'm okay with it for the bigger conferences. I wouldn't want to see Kansas play a Big 12 game when they only play 18 conference games. I wouldn't want to see them play a Big 12 game the first week of December. But I'm okay with it for the Big 10 because that conference is so unwieldy. Yeah, yeah, I don't like it. I like to play non-conference games first and then conference games. I don't like to mix uh, football, college football, or college basketball, but... Uh, uh, it, it does make for, like, for instance, last night's schedule, Monday night, we're recording on a Tuesday night. Um, if not for Michigan State-Iowa, um, the best game would have been Georgetown-Liberty or Vermont-George Mason. Um, Vermont-George Mason is, like, actually not a bad mid-major game. Georgetown-Liberty, Liberty's underrated. They're actually rated, or entering yesterday, were rated higher than Georgetown, but not really uh, the kind of games that are getting people excited. Um Michigan State, of course, destroyed Iowa, and it wasn't really a game anyway. But um, but in the in the opening of the uh, the Big Ten season, um, and again, not, one of the part of it is that we're talking about it. If it opened with everyone else, we wouldn't be. Kind of like their conference tournament last year, although I'm not sure that that was ultimately a good play. They're playing two games over this stretch, including tonight and tomorrow night. I think everyone will basically have played two games after that. Um, except for it looks like Maryland and Purdue only have played one game. And they play Thursday. So once they those two teams play, play Thursday, all the Big Ten teams will have played two games. Um, Michigan State and Wisconsin started 2-0. Uh, Michigan State defeated Rutgers and then last night defeated Iowa. Uh, Wisconsin defeated Iowa on the, uh, also and all of Rutgers, actually. Um, uh, Iowa is looking like maybe their early season offense is not uh, – sorry, defense is not uh, new and improved. It's just kind of regressing back to what it's been. They started 0-2. A, a difficult schedule, of course, uh, home to Wisconsin and at Michigan State. 
Um, Northwestern played Indiana in a very good game on Saturday in Bloomington. I was about an hour and a half away in Indianapolis, decided not to go. Um, but I had friends who were there ahead of the Big Ten championship football game. Uh, watched it in a bar with some annoying Ohio State and one annoying Indiana fan. Um, in that game, uh, Jawan Morgan got hurt towards the end of the game. Uh, do you have a status update on him? I don't want to put you on the spot, Tom. But I do have a status update on Jawan Morgan. I won't say what the score is because you're probably taping this game along with six other games tonight. But Jawan Morgan is playing against Penn State tonight. Ooh, okay. It's a good nugget. So I guess it wasn't as bad. Uh, as uh, as it looked, because he had to like he injured his leg, then he was like hobble hobbling, then he like, was carried off the court. It didn't look good, and then and I was watching that game actually with an Indiana fan who's not obnoxious, and um, he was into the game, but he was not he was very pessimistic about Juan Morgan, but it seemed like he's okay or. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, and Indiana won that game by two. They it was very close uh, throughout. Um, Northwestern got really good performances from Derek Pardon and uh, Vic Law, but down the stretch they weren't the ones taking shots, and and that came back to bite them. As uh, you know, Romeo Langford had a very good game um, with seven for ten shooting on twos, twenty four points, five rebounds. Uh, a good win for Indiana, tough loss for Northwestern, but a good performance for the Wildcats. It looked like they might be in the bubble range again this year. Um, but I do want to talk about Michigan. So Michigan defeated Purdue by 16 points, uh, a, re- a very good Purdue offense that has seen this Michigan defense before, last, you know, as in last year. Um, but this year, they this game, they had no answer. The Michigan uh, two-point defense is uh, the best in the country by far at 39, 35.9% this year, despite being only 80th in the country in block rate. Generally, block rate and two-point field goal defense are, uh, I guess, inversely correlated in this point, in, uh, in that way. There's only been six teams in the Ken Palm era that have had a two-point percentage rate uh, defense rate below 39%. And again, right now, Michigan's at 35.9. Of course, they have to play a lot of tough games left, and they'll probably go up. Um, But the six teams are 2017-18 Michigan State, which had Jaron Jackson and was number one in the country in block rate as a team. 2014-15 Texas, which had Miles Turner and was number one in the country in block rate. Uh, 2506 Kansas. You want to talk about this team at all? They had Julian Wright and Shasha Khan and some other guys. Shasha Khan, very underappreciated uh, player for Kansas um, in the history of um, the team. Obviously, he had foul trouble in the 08 championship game, and Cole Aldridge came on. But Sasha Khan, underrated, one of the early staples of the perimeter of the uh, download defender uh, mm-hmm. for Bill Self. That team was number 15 in the country in block rate. Actually, of the teams that have finished with a sub 39% two-point defense in the last you know, 10, I guess it's 17 seasons, Kansas actually had the lowest, the worst rank in block rate, and they were 15th in the entire country. Uh, 04, 05 Cincinnati, which had Eric Hicks and Jason Maxiel, they were third in the country in block rate. 03, 04 UConn, national title winner, they had Jamel, um, Jaleel Okafor, not Jaleel Okafor, Emeka Okafor and Josh Boone, and they were first in the country in block rate. And 2002-03, St. Joe's, which is a strange one, but they were actually ninth in the country in block rates. I guess my question is, we know that John Tusk is one of the best defensive big men in the country. We know that Xavier Simpson is one of the best defensive guards in the country. And right now, they're both defending the two and not allowing many threes. Um, do you think that this two-point defense is sustainable if their block rate is true talent block rate is like actually 80th in the country and not elite? Uh, I'm not this level, but I think they know what they're doing. They're obviously playing defense with a to try to give the worst shots to their opponent. They're not, they're running players off the line. They don't allow, I think they're 20th or something in the country. And obviously they play a slow tempo, 
But as far as uh, they're 23rd in the country in three points made per game. They only allow five threes a game. They're even better in the attempts department. They just don't let their opponents shoot threes. They're 17th in threes per game. Uh, they allow a bad percentage of threes, which is a could be a bit of luck or not. But I think they're forcing teams to take shots they don't want to take. I think that's a credit to Beeline and the staff adjustment he's made the last few years and just this focus on defense. He has talented defenders, and he's they're taking shots that are not not good ones for their opponents. They're, you know, mid-range. I'm sure there are a lot of mid-range twos and probably contested threes, and just that's what's happening. So I don't think they're going to sh- have them be this low without blocking shots, but it's a very uncomfortable team. Uh, for an opponent, Michigan's a very uncomfortable team to face right now. Yeah, I mean, Luke Yaklich, we talked about in a previous podcast, he's going to be one of the most sought-after candidates for coaching jobs after this season, I would think, for having this two straight years. Um, uh, obviously, uh, we had, uh, what's his name? The the Chicago Bulls coach just got fired. Oh, Fred Hoiberg. Fred Hoiberg, he's going to be hot on the market as well. Uh, sorry for blanking on that uh, audience, but Luke Yaklich is going to be there as well. Um Anyway, the beating season started. There are games on right now. Uh, there are games in the next couple of nights. We'll see how that plays out. It's a deep and very deep conference, especially, you've, you know, we've seen what Rutgers has done, um, beating Miami. And even in um, conference play, they only lost by five at Wisconsin. And then against Michigan State, they only lost by 11. And um, even though that was at home, they were only down one in, the, in into the second half of that game. Um Let's move on from the Big Ten. Let's move on to uh, some Big 12 games, notably Stanford-Kansas. I'm going to, again, pass this off to you, Tom, as uh, as the um, Kansas apologist. Yes. Uh, Kansas, another game at home, another double-digit deficit that they had to overcome. They were playing Stanford, who obviously is not good, um, and they were favored by 19 in Ken Palm and 20 in uh, the desert, and they came from behind to win 90-84 to in overtime. It was Jared Haas's return to Kansas as a coach. Uh, Kansas won in part because LeGerald Vick hit a game-tying three with about five seconds left uh, in regulation to tie the game. LeGerald Vick was amazing in this game again. Uh, he's basically the only player who can shoot threes on this team. Kansas was 0 for 3 in the first half. And then LeGerald Vick was 7 of 11 from 3. The rest of the team was Oh, for five. So they're not even taking that many threes. They're obviously running the offense a lot through Diedrich Lawson, who's playing very well. Um, some players who are not playing so well right now. Uh, Quentin Grimes is missing in action. Charlie Moore is playing limited minutes off the bench. Uh, Dotson was fine in this game. A lot of people are slacking on him, but I think he's fine. Azubuki played only 28 minutes in an overtime game. Uh, so Kansas, there's a sense around them that they've underachieved this year. Uh, I tend to agree with that, even though they've, they're perfect. They've won a lot of ugly games. They won a lot of maybe one or two games they shouldn't have won. Uh, I'm okay with how they've played. The one thing I'm a little worried about is their defense uh, adjusted. I was talking to you about this earlier today, Brendan, and I have to get the numbers again. But Kansas defense is they're 91.5 in adjusted defense. Which, sorry, which is 91, 0.915 points per possession in adjusted defense, which is sixth in the country. But if you look at their raw numbers, I think they're 150th. 148th at basically one point per possession, which is kind of crazy to think that there would be that big a difference. And they're the only team in the top 10 that's even close to that in adjusted to raw. They're 6 to 148. The next worst is Penn State 7th to 61st. Now, they have played the toughest non-conference schedule of any major conference team. Um, Sixth in Ken Palm. Sixth in Ken Palm are the toughest of any non-conference team. So I guess there's reason for that. But as these preseason rankings wear off on Ken Palm, I wonder um, how that will translate. 
Yeah. Um, I do want to note, you know, there's a lot and a lot of love of Gerald Vick. He has, yeah, has, I was a, has a checkered, this. checkered yeah. past, and the, the big story is like, oh, he left. The, he was going to leave the school, and blah blah blah. And what I actually want to say is not so much about Love Gerald Vick, or you can talk about him a little more if you want to, but is that um, Diedrich Lawson is still number two in the uh, the KPOI, the Ken Palm Player of the Year rankings, behind Ethan Happ. Um, so uh, I know we we know that the Vick is a big time shooter with that for them, a big time scorer, but. Um, you know, Lawson has scored 24, 24, 26, and 19 after putting up zero against Vermont and also has 15 rebounds, 13 and 12 in the last two games um, and gets the line a ton. Uh, so I think uh, people might be slightly underrating how good Diedrich Lawson has been because of the kind of eye-popping three-point shooting stats of uh, LeGerald Vick. If you want to talk unsustainable, let's talk about LeGerald Vick's outside shooting. He's more than 50% from three. Uh, he's really the only guy who's shooting... Uh, from three this year. And the Gerald Vick, the first story people tell about him now is this guy was off the team, basically. He had two feet out the door. He was looking at the NBA draft. And he was, then he had to like talk his way back on the team for Bill Self after Bill Self thought he was gone. Bill Self was making plans to just move on and have this loaded class come in. And it's, you know, it's, it's remarkable <clears throat> that he's come back. But people shouldn't forget that Gerald Vick was involved in a really controversial situation in 2015, the end of 2015, entering 2016. He allegedly assaulted a girl, pushing her and kicking her, and then was involved possibly in a vandalism of her car with Josh Jackson. And the university investigated it, found it was more likely than not that he had committed this assault, which is obviously terrible, and put him on two years probation. And if this had happened two years later, he might have been kicked off the team and possibly out of school. And the assault is one thing, and then the retaliation against the woman uh, later, along with Josh Jackson, who was obviously a star on that team at the time, I said, maybe to you, Brandon, maybe someone else, why is Bill Self protecting the Gerald Vick? Who cares? And obviously, Bill Self may be a... I don't, I don't know. It's tough to defend this. It's tough to say. And we don't, and I don't know all the facts, but it's a, not a great look for Kansas that their best player was involved in such a controversial incident two years ago. And now the, the bigger storyline that people are talking about is... Well, he was almost off the team. Isn't it a cool story that he's back on the team? And now, where would Kansas be without this guy that was almost off the team? Well, I don't know. I don't really. Yeah, I'm trying to unsubscribe to that narrative. Uh, not to add more controversy to the Gerald Vick narrative, but uh, two of his top five statistical comps on Ken Palm's site are uh, are Missouri Tigers, Kim English and Marcus Denman from 2012. Uh, moving on, uh, Texas Tech. One of um, my favorite teams this year, um, Chris Beer's such a good coach. They won by 11 against Memphis, but I think they were trailing for much of the game. Uh, I'm not sure if you caught any of this. Uh, I, I saw that Tariq Owens, the St. John's transfer, had eight block shots and 11 rebounds with 13 points, almost a, a triple-double in a weird way. Any thoughts on uh, Texas Tech versus the fighting uh, Little Pennies? Uh, little Pennies. Uh, they were down 37-28 at the half and then put up 50 points. In the second half to win, going away 78-67. Obviously, Jared Culver has been amazing again. Another 20-point performance. Uh, Texas Tech defense is really uh, what's going to help them this year. That f- the fact that Culver's made the leap is obviously going to be play a big role. Uh, but Texas Tech, to me, could be the biggest challenge in the Big 12 for Kansas this year. I'm not sold on Kansas State. Obviously, TCU's had a rough go of it. Texas State, I'm sorry, Texas Tech really playing some good ball right now, even if they had this hiccup. This game was a true road game at Memphis, right? This was at... It was uh, at American no, no, Airlines oh, Arena in, in Miami. Miami. Yeah. 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 So. I think it was part of doubleheader that also included Georgetown... Uh, not Georgetown. St. John's, uh, Georgia Tech, which we get to a little bit later. 
Yeah, I mean, it was. It, they're they're very good. They gave Kansas fits uh, last year. They're a very good basketball team. So I would not uh, sleep on them. And I don't think, I think te- Texas Tech may be the only team in the country that's won every game by double digits. Actually, Nevada. I think Nevada and Texas Tech are the two teams left in the country that have won all of their games and by double digits. Yeah. 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 Um, good. yeah let's move on to the Big East. The Big East had a lot of important games on Saturday. Um, eight of their ten teams played, and a lot of them had some interesting matchups. It didn't go particularly well. I think the, uh, I looked beforehand that the Big East was expected to win 5.33 games of the eight on Saturday, according to Ken Palm's percentages, and they won five. Uh, I want to start with the battle of a little roadie between Providence Friars and University of Rhode Island. As I mentioned, I was in Indianapolis, and uh, the first half, I, I planned to watch the whole game at a bar, but... Um, the first half coincided with the pep rally for Northwestern football and a, a free food. Plus, I had to get my tickets from my friend, and um, uh, they had a, a like a, a programming that included. It was hosted by Mike Greenberg of Mike and Mike fame, and some of the folks on the um, on the da- dais, I guess you would say, were uh, Gary Barnett, the former Northwestern Colorado coach who has had a somewhat checkered history in uh, the last <laughs> few years. Uh, now, anyway, he generally has been has had a pretty good history, but it had some weird comments a few years ago when he had that female kicker. We can move on from that. But uh, we also had uh, Seth Myers was there and spoke, um, and uh, Christine Brennan and Michael Wilbon, who are in the same class, also in the same class as a woman I met uh, here in New York on uh, on Friday, um, which was random. But not the um, same class as Michael Wilbon. They're all in the same class. Oh, all the same class. I got you. Yeah, Christine but Brennan, Michael Wilbon, and um, and this woman Susan that I know. Um, anyway, uh, you know, I, I missed the first half and Providence was leading at halftime 39, 27. I was like, okay, no, no big deal. And I went to this bar that was in the, I guess it was the Hilton near the convention center in Indianapolis. Uh, my experience of Indianapolis downtown was basically a lot of convention centers and hotels. Um, yep, that's basically yeah. it. Uh, so with this, this bar called high velocity and I got, stopped by before going to the, uh, Idle Yorg, uh, Native American-focused and Western Museum, um, a few hours earlier, and I said, hey, there's a game on at 5. It's not a national game. No one really cares about it. It's not like one of these big football games or something. It's not Kansas-Stanford. Um, but if I if I come back at 5, can you give me a, 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 uh, give me a TV where I could watch it? And she said, okay, no problem. I come back at about 6, and at this point the bar is packed with people who are just like eating dinner before the football game started at 8. So I walk around, I find another waitress, and I ask her what I can do, and she takes me to the manager. And the manager says, are you, where are you sitting? I said, I'm not sitting yet. He said, well, I can probably get you a table in like 45 minutes. By then, the game will be pretty much over. So there's basically a TV in the hallway out to the lobby of the hotel that he puts the Providence URI second half on for me. Perfect, right? Yeah, I mean, I, it's for people walking by back and forth to the bathroom. Um, but <laughs> I was able to watch the game, and uh, Providence was wearing their gray slash silver jerseys, um, which I don't know. We can talk about it in another podcast, but that I'm not sure how I feel about the gray jerseys. But they wear for some of their big games. Then um, they entered the second half again up by 12. The second half score was this is in second half going to be higher scoring than the first half because of all the fouling and, and teams needing to come back. The second half score was Rhode Island 23, Providence 20. And here are some second half stats. Rhode Island shot five for 19 on twos, one for 11 on threes, and 20% overall, six for 30. Providence shot three for 15 on twos, one for eight on threes, and four for 23 overall for 17%. The Friars also missed 10 free throws of 21 in the half. Um, Rhode Island is 
and this is it was a weird nugget. They're next. They came in next to last in the country at 22% in three-point shooting, and then they went. They did even worse, and now they're down to 20.8%. But they're still next to last because Portland State has uh, is only 13%. Um, and it's a weird stat because Portland State has played four games against Division One teams. This is as of Monday morning, and three games against non-Division One teams. In the four games against Division One teams, they're shooting 13% on three-pointers. In the three games against non-Division One teams, they're shooting 41% on three-pointers. Anyway, the Friars won. It was an ugly game. Alpha Diallo, who's the, the Providence's best player, is had a terrible game. 0 for, 5, 0 for 6 from the field, um, and three turnovers. Uh, he did have five points and eight rebounds and three assists. Uh, the rest of the Big East games, we'll kind of run through them quickly. Um, Creighton played well, but lost to Gonzaga uh, in a very high-scoring game. Gave over 100 points. Um, they just didn't have enough bigs to um, to battle. Uh, Hachimura and Brandon Clark. Clark had a big game. Martin Crample is like the one good big um, for Creighton. They actually have a second big. Um, that they don't play together with Crample very often. He's a he's a sophomore who was who has redshirt moved from him last year because of the injury, uh, and that's Jacob Epperson. They also have this guy Samson Froling, but they don't really play any of them together very much, and so uh, they they spread you out. They shoot threes, a lot of threes, um, but ultimately they they didn't score enough to keep up with. Uh, Gonzaga, Marcus Howard scored 45 for Marquette against Kansas State. Dean Wade only took seven shots and fouled out. Um, and the Marquette beat K-State. St. Louis beat a second Big East team. They'd already beaten Seton Hall, and then they shut down Butler. Uh, but Kamar Baldwin only had six points in the entire game. Um, Javon Bess had 18 points, plus three assists and no turnovers, and also defended Kamar Baldwin. Big game for probably the best team in the Atlantic 10, arguably at least. Louisville won a close one over Seton Hall. Uh, Miles Powell scored 23 for the Hall, but was only 2 of 12 on threes. Louisville ended the game in a run to win that one. And St. John's, they undefeated. They were down late against Georgia Tech, but uh, uh, Shamari Pons had 37 points in that one. And St. John's escaped in the game that preceded the Memphis-Texas Tech game we talked about earlier. And finally, Villanova came back to beat, uh, I believe, a winless LaSalle team in a Big 5 game by 7. Yeah, LaSalle is now 0-8. Any uh, any overriding thoughts on those eight Big East games um, or the teams that those Big East teams played? Uh, Gonzaga obviously looked really good. They scored 62 points in the second half against Creighton on the road. That's pretty impressive. Three guys with 20 points. We talked about that. They are very good. Um, and they scored 1.36 points per possession that game. That is insane. Uh, so they are very scary. I think they're, what's cool about college basketball is every week some team comes around. Like now Michigan is the team of the month, the team of the week basically this week. Gonzaga was the team of the week uh, last week as far as uh, what goes on. Duke was the team of the week the first year of the season. Uh, I think Florida, I'm uh, sorry, Virginia is going to get its crack soon enough if they keep winning. Um, so there's kind of like a flavor of the week. But they're really, there are like five or six really good teams at the top of college basketball right now. And each team's kind of getting... They're getting their marquee chance to show themselves, and um, Gonzaga's continuing to do that even after their big win against Duke. Uh, yeah, and so what do we think about Louisville? They they look like they had a very tough stretch of their schedule, and they came out okay. They beat that Michigan State team in overtime, then they went to Seton Hall on the road and won that game. Uh, what do we think of how Chris Max adjusting at Louisville? Because it seems like it's going pretty good, pretty well. Uh... Yeah, I mean, and then, you know, they lost an overtime game and won an overtime game, losing to Marquette and beating Michigan State in the games we've talked about on this podcast. Um, you know, they play at Indiana on Saturday, which is an interesting game, kind of a regional matchup there. 
Uh, they're first in the country in free throw rate. So they get to the line more than any other team in the country as a percentage of their uh, field goal attempts. Um, and they shoot the ball pretty well. Their offense is, is, uh, is, is interesting. Um, they don't have – their high-volume guy, Jordan Inwara, isn't all that um, efficient, but he takes up so many possessions and he's not inefficient. And then a lot of these other guys, Stephen Enoch, Ryan McMahon, Darius Perry, Dwayne Sutton, are, are pretty efficient guys. Um, yeah, I, I don't know about Louisville's defense, whether it'll be able to hold up um, during the season, although they have been a little bit unlucky on in three-point defense. Maybe that'll regress for them. It does feel like a team kind of similar to Northwestern that you mentioned earlier that'll be right around that bubble. And it'll be a matter of whether they can win close games down the stretch in the in the ACC. Very tough schedule. Everyone in the ACC will have a tough schedule. Not a lot of days off, um, although they do play Pittsburgh at home um, and uh, and Boston College at home. Yeah, and they, I mean, they have Kentucky coming up on December 29th. Uh, that game is at the Yum Center. I was going to call it Freedom Hall, but it's not Freedom Hall anymore. They also play Lipscomb at home, and Lipscomb's a pretty tough team. Um, and so it's a, it's a tough schedule. They, you know, they've played the 20, 20th toughest schedule in the country, non-conference schedule, and they still have a game at Indiana and Kentucky at home and uh, Lipscomb at home. So, uh, you know, it's something it's fascinating because the, in, a, in a month we might be like, wow, Louisville's a top – 25 team and or in a month we would be like well louisville i guess that they need another year before they bring in that top class so every every week in college basketball brings a little bit something different like you said about a team kind of emerging each week yeah and the other one thing i want to add villanova down 10 in that game for LaSalle late in the first half siobhan quinterly still not playing um eric pascal at 27 points phil Buta 19 but this team does not look like the deep teams we've seen for villanova in the past um they kind of seem like they righted the ship with that win against Florida State in the uh, um, tournament in Orlando by the sponsor we will not name. But uh, mm-hmm. they've so we don't we don't we don't care to name this one. We don't care to name this one. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so, but well, then they one thing go. about LaSalle is I just want to jump in on that. Ashley Howard is the coach of LaSalle in his first season, assistant under Jay Wright for a while. So I don't know if there was a little bit of weirdness there. You know, he knows the system really well, but the, the offense for LaSalle is what stood up in that game. They scored uh, one point two two points per possession, um, including hitting, uh, 63% of their twos and 52% of their threes and 89% of their free throws. It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe you don't win a game when you shoot a 60, 50, 88 or 89 um but they did turn the ball over a lot and ultimately they couldn't stop villanova yeah so villanova's in their little big five stretch here so we'll see how they turn out of it but uh not uh not looking so great even after the win down in orlando as we transition to uh some of the upsets we saw let's hit on one mid-major game of note um and that was in belfast ireland northern ireland um between the Buffalo Bulls and the Cisco Dons. Um, Buffalo stayed undefeated with a four-point win, um, and the Dons lost its their first game uh, after starting the season seven and zero. You know, both of these these are two of the top mid-majors in the country. Actually, Buffalo everyone knows about because they've beaten they won at West Virginia and they won at Southern Illinois, um, and they also beat Arizona in the NCAA tournament last year. Nate Oates is their coach. Um, and then they turn it to uh, most of the same guys. They're 17th in the country in, in minutes continuity. Um, and we've talked about USF in this podcast. If you've listened, you know uh, Kyle Smith is their coach in his third year there. Um, and they have a, one of the sneaky teams in the West Coast Conference already up to, um, what are they at now, 60th in Ken Palm. They started the year 136 and they're up to 60th. 
Um, they haven't really played a very tough schedule. They did win a game against Harvard at home. That Harvard came back late, but uh, San Francisco held on by four. This was their first real big test against Buffalo. Um, although they've been blowing other teams out, they beat. They won by 18, 19, um, 32, 43, and 24 in their previous games. And they get Cal uh, tomorrow night. That's Wednesday night at uh, at Cal. Arguably the worst team in the Pac-12. Either uh, Cal or Washington State is the worst team in that conference. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that before we move on to some of the upsets we saw. Well, that game was in Belfast, so it was just nice to see. Uh, I was watching some of those games during the day. It was nice to see um, some of those uh, them get some uh, good games over there. LIU was over there. Uh, Marist was over there. Dartmouth was over there. So they got they kind of lucked out with this game. These two teams, they both can make the tournament uh, if they keep playing like this. Uh, obviously, San Francisco probably the less likely of the two, uh, but good for Belfast to get a get a game like this over there. And Kyle Smith's uh, one other thing: Kyle Smith's uh, former school, Columbia, definitely is missing him. They lost 87-86 in double overtime to Delaware. Uh, their only win this year, Columbia, is against St. Joseph's New York, which is not a Division One team. So they are 0-5 in Division One. It is not uh, looking good for. Jim Engel's Lions, and they've lost several games by uh, Fordham. They lost by one. Delaware, they lost by one in double overtime. Uh, I think they, single digits, eleven and single digits. So yeah, they have not been blown out. They haven't played a tough schedule, but they're losing a lot of close games, so it's a little frustrating. Yeah, the Ivy League um, looks maybe slightly stronger than it was last year, but uh, ultimately. Um, I'm not sure that we're going to see what we saw in past years where Princeton and Yale and Harvard were all the kind of top 100 teams this year. It looks like Yale and Harvard are pretty good. Penn and Princeton and Brown are okay. And then Cornell, Dartmouth, and Columbia are pretty uh, pretty poor. Yep, terrible. Um, some upsets over the last week uh, that are of note. Um, I'll run through them quickly, and then we can talk about them. Let's start with the SEC. South Carolina lost again at home to Walford. They've already, already lost previously to Stony Brook. The SEC, which had a lot of hype coming this season, really has struggled. Uh, nonetheless, they seem to kind of be immune to criticism. Um, Bama lost also last week by six at UCF, which obviously isn't a terrible loss, but um, their offense is really struggling. Um, in the Big 12, we saw Texas Southern, who had already – well, that's actually not Big 12. Texas Southern had previously beaten Baylor, a green and gold team. Then they went and beat Oregon, which looks a little bit uh, unkempt early in the season again with a lot of new players at Oregon. Johnny Jones has now beaten Baylor and Oregon. Radford, who uh, was roundly mocked for being quite high in the um, uh, in the net, went to Texas in one by three after Texas looked so good uh, in that tournament in Vegas, knocking off UNC. Uh, a couple others, uh, Northeast teams that knocked off ACC teams. Yale defeated Miami, finished the game on an 18-5 run to win, which means Miami lost consecutive games to uh, Seton Hall, Rutgers and Yale. Uh, none of those games on the road. Yikes. Um, and then Niagara, uh, I think just maybe last night, um, beat Pitt by one. Pitt had looked okay this year in their first year under coach Jeff Capel. Almost won at Iowa um, and had been playing better basketball than most people expected. Um, but in this one, they fell at home by one. They had beaten uh, St. Louis, talked about before, by two. So, I mean, they hadn't been so bad, but uh, this was a bad one. Any thoughts on these upsets or what they say about some of these teams and conferences? Uh, Texas's last two games, they've had double-digit leads in the first half and then just blown them. Uh, Michigan State's one thing. Radford at home is another thing. Uh, not 
super encouraging. The Big 12's got some holes in its resume. I'm a little worried about how this conference is going to... Have they slipped to number two yet in the uh, Ken Palm rankings? Is that... I feel like that's no. inevitable. No. Okay. No. Okay. I don't um, think it's inevitable. I think you're being a little hard on the, on the, on the Big really? 12. Really? Okay. Yeah. Because Oklahoma State uh, and Oklahoma have been better than expected. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I'm just I'm focusing on the disappointment of TCU. And obviously Texas Tech is good. Uh, but yeah, Texas I have no confidence in to be... Uh, and they're dangerous, but just not to be a reliably good team. Uh, this year, in the last two games, they haven't really played like it. They have the chance to rebound against uh, ooh, VCU uh, at home, and then they play Purdue uh, at home as well. Yeah, they so. also have Providence on the schedule at home um, yeah. on December 21st. It's a, t- a tough schedule. Home against, I mean, it's all home games, but home against VCU, Purdue, Grand Canyon, and Providence. Grand Canyon, of course, coached by Thunder Dan Marley. Uh, Tom, you may not know, is. Uh, a diehard Phoenix Suns fan, <laughs> uh, which you'd only expect from uh, someone from Long Island. Um, True. So I know I know he's been following the Antelopes uh, game by game throughout the season. Oh yeah. Um, some news items: uh, Iowa State's Cam Lardens or Intali, who were suspended for the first number of games of the season, they returned last night for ISU's win over North Dakota State. More important than them returning for that game is that it means that they will be available for uh, Iowa State's next game, which is against Iowa. Uh, in Iowa City on Thursday. We still don't know exactly when um, Lindell Wigginton, their their star sophomore point guard, will be back. Um, but once all those guys are together, assuming Wigginton is healthy from his injury, uh, that team looks pretty good. Uh, maybe maybe even the third or fourth best team in the Big 12. Darius Garland talked about it in the podcast last week. He was diagnosed with a torn meniscus and was set, thought to miss about four to six weeks. He's actually been uh, not not ruled out for the year, but uh, declared out. Um, you could see him potentially coming back. Usually a meniscus tear is not a four-month injury, but if he's predicting his draft stock, we saw what happened with Michael Porter Jr. last year coming back in uh, the conference tournament and then in the NCAA tournament looking not very good. Um, and it didn't seem to help his draft stock. I'm sure his medicals and his other back issues have been part of that as well. A cook, a cook is um, a player out of the, um, the Northeast, who um, committed to UConn. He's a, a kind of a borderline five-star. He was looking at Providence and Georgetown and Syracuse as well. Um, he's enrolled actually already at UConn, and there was some thought that he might play second semester, but he will not. He'll redshirt the rest of this year and play next year. Um, he may be eligible for the draft next year, uh, um, like Hamadou Diallo was, although Diallo had to come back to Kentucky. Um, it was originally his, it was reported that he was going to go straight to the pros, either to the G League or uh, to the NBA draft. Um, but he, uh, I think he's decided to actually go to Connecticut for a year. We, we didn't talk about the James Wiseman commitment, which happened before our previous podcast. If you want to know about that, just listen to any of the last like dozen uh, CBS I and College Basketball podcasts. Uh, Gary Parrish has everything you need to know about Wiseman, who's from Memphis, and he's going to go to Memphis, picking him over at Kentucky. And that Memphis class next year is loaded. Uh, what do you, what do you what do you get to say about any of this, Tom? Uh, we all t- yeah. Gary Parrish has done a good job outlining how great it is for Memphis that Wiseman's going there over Kentucky. I wonder um, what it means as far as Kentucky's uh, place in the recruiting world. But Memphis is going to be a factor again. It's amazing how Memphis's fortunes have fallen. They do play. It's crazy to play in a huge arena like that and play in front of empty seats all the time. I wonder how. That is on the program, but they're normally pretty good. So, I guess you take the good with the bad. But it, that's crazy to think of how empty that arena has been over the last uh, few years. And yeah, it's basically. I'm interested to see how a cook a cook uh, will do at Connecticut next year. What role Dan Hurley played in that decision, or what whether there's other um, 
factors at play, whether he just thought it would help his uh, draft stock. And Darius Garland, I would bet he does not. I don't know. What would you do if you were him as far as playing at Wake Forest? Oh, Vandy. Um, oh, Vandy. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, Vandy, sorry. Yeah, it's, it's a black and gold team that's yeah. good at academics. Uh, yeah. yeah. How's, how's $10? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's our third Seinfeld reference. Um, so, uh, I, I don't know. I, it sounds like he really likes to play at Vanderbilt. He likes being a student. Um, he's always wanted to play at Vanderbilt, which is not something, I guess it's like me always wanting to play at Providence growing up. You don't find a lot of kids who grew up wishing to play um, at Vandy on those weird courts with the benches on the ends. Um, but uh, uh, I don't know. I, I think he'll probably go pro. Uh, I would th- recommend that he go pro, um, especially if he, if he's healthy at the end of the year. If he is not healthy for pre-draft workouts, he may want to consider coming back. Um, but, you know, he should do whatever he wants. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not going to be a per- uh, I don't know. He can do what he wants, and uh, I think it'll work out for him. He's very talented, uh, not a great defensive prospect. But uh, uh, on the UConn front, uh, you know, I wish the best for a cook, a cook, and I can only wish the worst for that UConn program. Totally fair. Uh, mm-hmm. So um, let's talk a little bit about the net, just briefly. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on it because we don't know exactly how it's going to be used. But uh, a week after the net was originally released. Um, it was uh, it's keep continue to be updated. I think daily actually, um, but uh, I, you know there was the controversy we talked about with Nate Silver last week, kind of blasting as the worst uh, ranking of all time, and uh, and Ken Palm actually there are a couple of interesting things I, I listened to this week. There's a, a Ken Palm podcast where where he basically said that he thought that Dan Gavitt, the kind of head or czar of college basketball in um, uh, in the NCAA, it was basically brilliant for. Um, releasing the net when he did um it was it got people talking about college basketball on the week of the championship week for um for conference for college football and the middle of the nfl season and the nba season uh, i thought it was a, a a shrewd um marketing move i'm not sure that he's playing three-dimensional chess like ken palm suggests um but i don't know you have any thoughts on the net ratings a week later let me just give you the top 10 of the net uh, or let's do top 12. Um, 13th, by the way, is Buffalo, so just so you're aware. 12, Tennessee, 11, Nevada, 10, Kansas, 9, Nebraska, 8, Auburn, 7, Michigan State, 6, Wisconsin, 5, Texas Tech, 4, Duke, 3, Gonzaga, 2, Michigan, and 1, Virginia. Um, so I do buy into there is an element of any press is good press. I know some people disagree with it. It was so bad when it came out that it shouldn't have been released. But it got people talking about college basketball and people paying attention. Why is this team here? What's going on? And I think that is good. I don't think people are going to remember if the net straightens itself out and the ratings are plausible by March and there's no weird outliers like Loyola Marymount and there's no weird other things going on. I think it's going to be fine that they got it out in late November and got people talking about the sport. If it's still weird in March, then they're going to have a problem. But the problem then won't be that they released it in November. The problem will be that uh, then Rainian has a problem with it. So I don't necessarily think I would have released it last week. Uh, with it looking so weird, but I do think there's some element, I will listen to an argument about whether any press is good press. I just wish I knew more about the top ranking. Am I wrong in saying that the 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 first team rating index, whatever it is, that first component, they haven't revealed how they calculate that, right? And that's the most important yeah, factor? Yeah, there's not a lot, yeah, there's not a lot of information. I think that's the biggest problem um, with it. And also it seems to, so it says it caps margin of victory at 10, which I think we discussed last week, but then it has a, uh, efficiency margin as another metric. And efficiency margin is basically um, 
margin of victory divided by possessions um, rather than margin of victory capped at 10 divided by games. So it's basically a double. There's a lot of kind of overlapping um, elements to the to the, uh, to the net, which is a little bit worrisome. Uh, I think ultimately it'll be an improvement over RPI, and if it's only uses a sorting mechanism, then it probably isn't a problem. But if you are interested in more learning more about the net, I would recommend the um, the Solving Basketball podcast. Uh, Jordan Sperber had the inimitable, inimitable John Gassaway on this week from ESPN to talk about the net and the RPI. Um, there's a lot of actually interesting history in the RPI there, uh, including a former Duke coach and uh, is behind some of the history of grouping teams and thinking about top 50 wins. So I'd recommend that. Digs into it a little bit. Um, you know, we're not going to know until March how it's being used, but if it's being used simply to group teams into quadrants, then I think ultimately it's it's almost it's not. It's just a, it's just a, a kind of a waste of time to spend too much time discussing it. Yeah, I do think that podcast was very good. The best point of that podcast was at the very end, where John Gasway made the point that it's socially acceptable to run off the score by playing defense through the whole game, but not by offense. And he wonders why that is. So, if you listen all the way through, you'll get that and much more wisdom. See, I, I, I heard that, and is that kind of like running down the score or like running up the scoring margin? Right, but maybe score that's yeah, yeah. I guess that's what they mean by running up the score is the scoring margin. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you have any thoughts that you want to talk about looking back or some of my other topics in college basketball before we move on to looking ahead? Uh, I do want to talk about the whole transfer epidemic that's been going around uh, this week. Jalen Hurts in college football. I watched a college football game. Came in off the bench after not transferring out of Alabama and led Alabama to a comeback victory in the SEC championship game. And everyone's Plucky like, oh, look. underdogs in yeah, Alabama. Look. Yeah, exactly. But everyone's like, oh, look what happened. He didn't transfer, and he stayed. And look, this is why you shouldn't transfer. Transferring is like the coward's way out. We've basically seen ma- many elements of you should not transfer because uh, you don't know what's going to happen. And don't like just take the path of least resistance. And frankly, these people are getting exploited enough. The student-athletes, football and college uh, basketball players, quote-unquote student-athletes, they should do what they want. If they want to make a judgment about what's going, what's best for them, they should do it. And not obviously, sometimes it's not the correct move to transfer, but sometimes it is. And you shouldn't be judged as far as saying, uh, "I transferred." You you took the least uh, the coward's way out. And like one tweet that really kind of summed up this uh, thing was the John Rothstein tweet about Hachimura and how he stayed, but he stayed because, and as Ken Pom pointed out, he was the ninth man on a team. That was going to lose players, and he knew he was going to have an opportunity there, so he made the right decision based on the evidence available to him. So, players I think should be able to transfer without restriction, no sitting out a year, no nothing. And I just, it's just something that came up this week because of the confluence of college football and college basketball. And I just really think these players are restricted enough. Like, if I went to a school and I wasn't an athlete, I could, just like any student, I could just transfer when I wanted to, as long as the other school would take me. And I don't see why it should be any different for the athletes. So there's my rant on that. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I think I think a, a, a happy compromise because you know a lot of the rules that are put in in college sports are are not because of the players; it's because of the of the coaches and the programs. And you know, I think like a happy compromise would be to just say everyone gets to transfer once immediately. 
as long as it's like not in the middle of the season. Like you can transfer in the season, but you can't play that season. But basically, in between seasons, you can transfer immediately and play once. And after that, then you you sit out. I think that's it's. I think it's only fair to allow to people to transfer, and I think it's fair to restrict it to a point because um, then you'd have people transferring all the time. I think that's that's a compromise that I th- that you know reasonable minds can get behind maybe, um, and. Uh, and I think that it would allow players freedom of movement early in, his, early in the career. Right now, it's you're incentivizing, and I, I hate that word, Tom. You're creating incentives. To, Thank you. Um, yeah, you're creating incentives to have players transfer early so they can transfer again. Like because of the grad transfer rule, basically, if you transfer early in your career, which means you'll be sitting out a year, so you'll have sat out a year and played three years, and therefore, if you graduate in four years, then you can transfer again without a sit out. So it's basically creating incentives for people to transfer twice so like let's let everyone transfer once you don't have to sit out um and i don't think the numbers will go up too much because you already see the ncaa giving more and more waivers for transfers basically making up any excuse that you want to be able to put someone to play i think they're kind of uh hinting at the idea that the excuses aren't that important and let's just let everyone transfer once uh, i'll get behind that it's definitely an improvement over the current situation yeah oh and and, and I, I john rossi man on twitter it's like it's really a caricature of himself. Um, like you, you couldn't be more a caricature of, of something than John Rossi is of himself on Twitter. Um, you know, I, I still follow him because he has good, some good nuggets in reporting. But man, it's just like it's just so kitschy. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, whatever. I don't, I don't want to rip him too hard. So let's move on to coming uh, upcoming games. There's ten games we're going to focus on, including three that are tonight, four that are tonight, which means that. You know, there's something actually going on right now, but don't tell me what happened, anyone listening. Don't tell me what happened in Boston College and Providence, especially. How many games are you taping right now, Brendan? Just just one? I'm just, I'm just taping the Boston College-Providence game at 7, and then the Northwestern-Michigan game at 9. Right. Um, and then I'll watch them back-to-back and probably finish by the end of the Northwestern game at around 11. Um, Perfect. Fast-forwarding and such. So there are four games today we're going to talk about. It's 10 games total. Um, let's review our picks from the previous week. Do you have, like, a, a total oh, tally of our, of our record? Uh, no, I didn't update it. My bad. No when problem. I think that the I think we started with the um, we started with Nevada Loyola. So it looks like you went four, five, six, four, and one, and I went one, two, three, four, five, six, four, and one. Also, no sign. Nice. Yeah. So we both went six, four, and one. So you, if you had taken our picks, you would have made a little bit of money, not very much, um, but you would have made a little bit. Um, and so for the season, Tom's above 500, and I'm creeping back up on 500. Yeah, 23 and 19, and one and two. Yeah, uh, let's start with uh, Boston College Providence. This is at Conti Forum in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts. The uh, the Eagles. I'm sure we could have gotten a real line. I think it's actually minus two. Let's use that line. Um, Kempom had it at minus three. Providence has, even though they've been the much better program of of late. They haven't won at Conti Forum since Valentine's Day 2004 when Craig Smith was facing off against Ryan Gomes. Uh, set six straight losses, and they're 1-9 in their last 10 at Conti Forum. What are your thoughts on this game? First of all, I wonder how much Ryan Gomes weighed uh, during that ga- for that game. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> and Providence's backcourt needs some work, so I'm going to take Boston College. I think that's really – obviously, Brendan, you know way better than I do, but they just look a little unsettled. And so I'm going to take uh, Boston College in this game. Yeah, I mean, good Providence, better Providence teams than this have lost to worse Pro- uh, Boston College teams than this. Um, the Providence defense is coming together. They played well in in about three of the four halves they played last week, although against worse offenses than they're going to face today. Um, 
I do think the offense will be better tonight. I wouldn't be surprised if the Friars won, but I think the smart money is, is on Boston College, unfortunately. This is a really big swing game for both teams in their non-conference season. Um, Kansas favored by 16 at home against Walford. We talked about Kansas' uh, struggles in terms of winning squeakers. Are you going to lay the 16 against uh, against no. Walford out of the Southern Conference? No, give me Walford at Allen Fieldhouse. I feel like this game is going to be very annoying tonight. Yeah, Walford has good wins already this year at South Carolina by 20. Um, they also have beaten East Tennessee, which is a pretty good team, on, under Steve Forbes, which was a guy who was a, kind of a hot name in the mid-major circuit. They beat them by 17 at home. Uh, I'm going to agree. Last week we disagreed a lot. We ended up with the same record, but I'm going to agree with you on, on this one. I'm going to take I'm gonna take the points and take a Wofford. Um, later tonight at, at uh, in the late game, uh, we have two, I think, 9 o'clock games. One is the red-hot Michigan Wolverines favored by 6. Uh, actually, the, the end number was actually 5, surprisingly, against Northwestern. And they're at uh, Welsh Ryan Arena, the refurbished Welsh, Welsh Ryan Arena. Um, what do you think? I like Michigan until someone can slow them down on deep or you know figure out a way to exploit them defensively, um, which I guess we could see in conference play when they start playing more familiar opponents. Uh, I'm going to like Michigan, and six isn't that many, or five isn't even that many points. Uh, so give me Michigan here. I'm going to agree again. Um, Michigan's going to give a lot of trouble to Northwestern's point guards. That's one of their spots of weakness. Um, Anthony Gaines is, uh, is not especially good. Jordan Ash also. The, um these aren't. This isn't the strength of their team. They're probably going to have Vic Law bring the ball up the floor. Law and Pardon at home, and if they knock down some shots, you could see this game staying close. But you know, five or six points. I'm not going to. Um, I'm not going to predict that Northwestern will be the first team to keep uh, keep Michigan close this year. So we're agreeing so far. Um, the first game of the Jimmy V Classic. I guess it's probably the second game, right? You, you went to first, is it Notre Dame Oklahoma or? or uh, Virginia, this is this uh, Notre Dame Oklahoma is the first game. So this okay. is the second. game. So Florida has uh, two games that Ken Palm has them as one-point favorites. One is this game, the Jimmy B Classic against uh, West Virginia, and then the, another one is a home game that I feel like you might be in close proximity to, Tom, on Saturday against Michigan State. Maybe. Florida's favored by one in both. Uh, who do you like in each of these games? Uh, I like Florida to win the first one and lose the second one. Uh, Florida's been kind of a, I don't know if they've been disappointed, but they haven't had a good win yet. They've had three chances to get a good win, and they've lost all three of them. They lost to Florida State, Oklahoma, and Butler. Their wins are against Charleston Southern, LaSalle, Stanford, and North Florida. Uh, West Virginia has similarly been a little disappointing. They lost to Western Kentucky and Buffalo. So they've lost their two toughest games. Um, So I don't expect this game to be particularly aesthetically pleasing, but I'm going to take Florida in this one. And the next game, Michigan State. It's looked a lot better. Um, they had 31 field goals on Monday night in the win against Iowa, and they had 28 assists. Now, I know as someone who was a former manager at Michigan State, he said they weren't too charitable with the assists at the Breslin Center. <clears throat> and I know someone else who was uh, working that game in a television cap- capacity last night, and he said a little bit, exclamation point, when I asked if they were generous with the assists. Either way, 28 assists on 31 field goals is a lot. Uh, I'd like Michigan State to go on the road uh, and beat Florida there so like give me florida the first game but then the michigan state in the second game you know a lot of people tom yeah well, we're, I'm, you an, so many people. I'm an occasional insider occasional insider tom borstein yeah yeah um Virginia has been getting really good play from Essa Ahmad this year, who's kind of always been a breakout candidate for years, and now he's a senior, and he seems like he's doing it. Sagaba Kanate has extended his range out to three points. Uh, I'm going to go with West Virginia in that one. Um, and the, so you took Florida and Michigan State, huh? Correct. I'm going gonna, 
I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go opposite. I'm gonna take West Virginia and Florida. Um, I, Michigan State. I still think will be inconsistent this year. Florida is a difficult place to play generally. Um, so I'm gonna go opposite of you on these games. Um, so Friday we have an interesting game. Nevada um, is playing Arizona State at the Staples Center, and in a triple header actually that also includes St. Mary's, New Mexico, and TCU USC. Nevada's undefeated. They haven't been challenged this year. They don't have a very tough schedule. This is one of the toughest games they have left against undefeated Arizona State. They're favored by nine. What do you think? Uh, I think they'll win. I think they'll probably cover. And it's interesting because, as you said, they have not been anyone. They beat BYU, Pacific, Little Rock, Cal Baptist, Tulsa, UMass, Loyola, Chicago, and USC in a game. They were back and forth for the first half before pulling away on Saturday. Um, They're the number one adjusted offense right now in Ken Palm. Uh, their next game that they have two more, sorry, three more eight games left. They have at Fresno State, at San Diego State, and at Utah State. Those are not exactly uh, big names. We've talked about this before in the podcast. I think there's a they're losing game somewhere along the way, but they are very good. Uh, Jordan, Caroline, I do, do want to hit on Utah State just briefly. They, they are one of the biggest improvers of the season. They entered the season with 168th in Ken Palm under Coach Craig Smith. They've only lost once as a neutral court to Arizona State by five, and they've blown out pretty much every other opponent they've played. Uh, so that game might be a little bit tricky, but um, but anyway, I, I wanted to, I didn't want to jump over you there. But what do no, you? No, uh, give me Nevada in this game, but and don't give me them to not go undefeated. But they are pretty good, and their defense has been. My question was how the defense would gel with all these transfers, and so far it seems like it's fine. So I'm not worried about them. Yeah, Arizona State started off last season 12-0 and with wins over um, Kansas State and Xavier and St. John's and, and, and Kansas. at Kansas. Yeah. Um, so early in the season, Dan, uh, Bobby Hurley has it going, and then this year they've started 7-0, and and they have wins over Mississippi State and, as I mentioned, Utah State. Uh, I'm going to take um, Arizona State to cover. I don't think they're going to win, but I think they will cover. Um, the Sun Devils have... Uh, a balanced team. Um, they get to the foul line. They offensive rebound. Uh, they have Luence Dort, the uh, freshman we talked about from Montreal, um, and they still have uh, Kamani Lawrence, uh, who's out of the East actually, but he went west. He's from uh, Providence, Rhode Island, which is borderline bordering on my hometown. Remy Martin, um, although he was out um, a couple, he's been injured, so I'm actually not sure if he's going to play in this game. Um, and and so I'm going to take uh, Arizona State to cover and uh, Nevada to win and uh, Nevada to lose sometime this season. But uh, it may not be one of those three games you mentioned, but Arizona State is pretty tough with their ability to pressure um, on defense. Let's move on to Saturday. We have two games on Saturday. They're in-state battles between Big Ten and Big East teams. Wisconsin favored by one at Marquette, and Nebraska favored by five at home against Creighton. Wow, those are actually really intriguing games. Uh, Marquette. I like him at home. Marcus Howard's been playing really well. Um, he played very well against Kansas State, as we talked about earlier. Um, but Wisconsin's also so much better than they were last year. So it's this is this is I don't know. This spread seems fair, uh, but I'll take the home team uh, in that one. And then also Nebraska. Some people have described I think it was the Ken Palm podcast as like a little little Michigan. They play very similar style defensively against Creighton. Now Creighton obviously can score with anybody. Um, so I'll take Creighton in that game. We'll see. I know, Brendan, you were down on Nebraska early in the year, but now you might be up on them again. So, uh, But, yeah, give me uh, Marquette and Creighton in those games. Yeah, I bounced back on Nebraska, and uh, even though they got blown up at Texas Tech, I, I did pick them to beat Clemson, and, and they did. Creighton has been um, 
you know, they've been kind of very Creighton-y. Um, good on offense, shooting a lot of threes, spreading you out. They really are playing, uh, uh, you know, small forwards, wings as fours this year. Um, whether it's uh, Damian Jefferson or Mitch Ballack, Tyshawn Allison has been a breakout player for them. Um, I, I don't th- like this game for them. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they, you know if they shoot well. They, they're number one in the country in effective field goal percentage. They're number two in the country in three point percentage at forty five point eight percent. And a team that they're behind, I believe it's a Missouri Valley team. Yeah, Indiana State hardly takes any threes at all. So for teams that actually shoot a lot of threes, they're definitely the best shooting team. Um, and so they could shoot their way to victory, no doubt. Uh, but I will take Nebraska to win this game. Nebraska's done a really good job of limiting threes this year. They uh, have the eighth best field goal, three-point field goal defense in the country this year, and the sixth best job of limiting three-point field goal attempts. So I'm going to take uh, Nebraska to cover that five-point spread, and I also take Marquette uh, against Wisconsin. Um, I do like Wisconsin a lot, but at home, Marquette uh, shoots well. I guess one thing is that it's a little bit trouble, troubling with this pick. I'm not really about Marquette necessarily, but a big part of why they beat K-State was getting to the foul line, and uh, Wisconsin is not a team that fouls very much. They're 10th in the country. I'm, I'm going to switch my pick. There it is. I'm going to go with Wisconsin. Wow, I didn't even say anything. You just switched yeah. it. All right. I'm going to switch my pick to Wisconsin, um, and then the, the two games on Sunday that are both intriguing, uh, the first one more than the second one, um, Gonzaga favored by four on neutral court in Arizona against Tennessee, and Texas favored by one at home against Purdue. Uh, so the Gonzaga-Tennessee game will be interesting. Tennessee, obviously, they're only lost this year against Kansas at the Barkley Center in the preseason NIT, whatever they're calling it these days. NIT tip-off, I think they call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that'll be an interesting game because we'll see how well Gonzaga, which is amazing down low and scoring from inside at the two-point Two-point field goals goes up against Tennessee's defense, which is very good inside. Uh, so that'll be the matchup to watch there. Um, I do like Gonzaga here. Um, Tennessee's not quite as deep as they are, so give me Gonzaga even laying the four points. And then give me Purdue on the road against Texas. As we've we talked about, Texas just so inconsistent so far this year. Um, I like Purdue with Carson Edwards. Now they can really bang the glass. Um, so I'll take uh, Purdue in that game. Uh, I, too, will take Purdue. Um... I don't have a strong feeling about this one. These games are all really tough, I think, yeah. like, especially this last these last four games. Uh, I really don't know. Um, Texas has been so inconsistent this year. Um, Purdue's been more consistent and a little bit limited, um, but with Carson Edwards and Ryan Klein, I think they'll hit enough threes um, to win that one on the road. Um, and their, their offense, I, th- I just think that they're a little bit more experienced, um, a little bit more ready to perform on the road against Texas team that might be a little lackadaisical at certain elements of the game. Uh, and then the other one, Tennessee Gonzaga, which might be the game of the week. I think uh, it is if you go by yeah. Ken Palm fan match score. It's yeah. got to be 82.5. Um, I'm going to go with Tennessee just because I feel like this game matchup is pretty even. Um, Tennessee's defense is has been a strength for the last couple of years. They're very, very skilled and together on a string on defense. Uh, and they're number nine in the country on defense, just a defense this year. Um, I, I don't, I'm not sure they've, I think they barely, Kansas barely got above a point per possession uh, in that game when they, they're only lost and they haven't allowed a, anything close to a point per possession in any other game this year. So this is the toughest defensive test that Gonzaga has probably faced this year. Um, and then offensively, Tennessee's running a lot of the Bob McKillop Davidson kind of continuity um, and back screening and, and that sort of thing. 
And, you know, I think that Gonzaga will be tr- will struggle to defend it. They struggled against Creighton. Um, Tennessee's not quite the three-point shooting team that Creighton is, but they can really pound you inside, and they're very diverse on offense. They're in the top of her in the country in, in effective field goal shooting and t- in not turning it over in offensive rebounding and in getting to the line. Um, you know, I do wonder if when they get to the line, will they be able to hit there? They're only 70%. Um, I, I'm gonna, I think this is basically a toss-up, and it's a four-point spread, so I'll take the underdog. Just to fact check you, Tennessee did give up more than a point per possession against Louisville and Kansas. So outside of the borough of Brooklyn, they've been excellent defensively. On neutral court, and these and and the only games they played outside of home. So maybe that's a little bit worrisome. Yeah. That they on their only non-home games, they give up a point per possession, and also this game is not at home, uh, either. Uh, yeah. Um, so what what uh, what uh, you got going on the rest of the week, Tom? Uh, is there any special like life occasions happening? Uh, yeah, I'm celebrating my birthday a few days early on uh, Thursday. Hope to see you there, mm-hmm. Brendan. Happy birthday. Uh, for those of you who are in the area, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but seriously, if you are, if, if you are, if you live in New York and you want to hit us up on Twitter, you can do so. We're at, uh, at DoubleBonusPod on Twitter. DoubleBonusPod.com uh, um, is our website where you can get updates as well. Um, and then subscribe on um, Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, are i'm told the two most uh, popular podcasting platforms to people who listen to their podcast at least and also we're on uh google play music where my parents have uh subscribed uh, i don't know if they listen but if you are hey mom and dad <laughs> um yeah uh you know for sure twitter is a place to follow us we you know tweet a little bit sporadically but when we're watching games and that sort of thing uh, subscribe rate review if you have comments questions you can hit us up on twitter or you can email us at doublebonuspod at gmail.com any other uh, closing thoughts tom now looking forward to a good week of uh, some good college hoops the gonzaga tennessee game we're gonna have to find a way to watch on sunday for sure yeah and until that day comes uh, keep your ear to the grindstone Thank you.